Naomi, do you want to go first? So I'm just going to tell, sorry, just tell, we're collecting questions that might pertain to bits left over that uh, that need to complete the set of foundations so that people are clear on that. And then we're going to see if we can kind of weave that together. It's about um, fullness of intention and um, wanting to, to working with the um, all, all the bits that have been taught, where, where this paradigm sits with awakening. that fits and how participation fits with awakening because there are parts of what has been experienced here that feel like what some people describe aspects of awakening although I understand that the logos of awakening is also really fascinating. Okay, great. So I won't repeat until I try to collect them and see. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm a bit, I wonder if you have something more to say about uh, creating discovery. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, about the role of Logos, which one of the stars in the constellation, and just a sense that it feels like there have been times when something has been soul-making um, without having a sort of an obvious role of Logos, at least in, in the moment. So yeah. Yeah. two quick examples. One in terms of movement. Sometimes there are movements that happen and it very much feels like part of what is soul making is that there isn't a logos attaching to the movement. And another is sort of in relationship, there's one example I can think of where it's almost like something was happening energetically, and part of the bit of it that was soul making was the fact that there just wasn't a logos obviously attaching, and in a way there's a sort of bliss, blissful ignorance as to what was happening, that seemed part of the, okay. the soul making. Yeah, good, thank you. Okay, one, two, three, there were six apparently, James, yeah. Um, the word and the idea of soul itself, I'd be kind of interested if maybe you could come up with some near synonyms or some kind of poetic, Im simple poetic images for it. but it feels very much like those moments um, you know had a sense of of the imaginal or otherness and these kinds of things that we've been talking about and I'm interested in and I feel like there's implications in what you're saying like connecting things like that. I'm not quite understanding the question you, you had experiences in prior practice yeah. that seemed kind of imaginal right and what are you wondering um, just want to hear you talk more about it some, seems sometimes seems like you're 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 connecting that those experiences to um, that when that when something works in practice that it does have some you know that we are drawn towards these moments of beauty and the autonomy of another and um, 
even when we don't have these frameworks or this vocabulary. Okay. I think I understand. And then was there another one? Yeah, Andrew. <clears throat> Today, what in the energy body? Mm -hmm. You were encouraging us to find out how to experience looking more to better. But the range can be limited. So you were suggesting the long breath. And I'm just thinking of people on the foundations listening from home and aware of the possibility sometimes the body with autonomy can take over and energy can get very intense. Yeah, okay, so let's see if we can move that in. Anamaka, yeah. My question is more related to the practice. For example, with and the intentionality. For example, with metta, we don't just go around and wait for metta to arise and then, oh, it arose. There's a an intentionality practice, even though I don't feel like meta right now, then there is that yeah. effort <coughs> yeah. um, required yeah. to practice. Yeah. And I'm just wondering with the imaginal uh -huh. you, You've mentioned several times we can't do it all day long. It's, and I've also noticed the times that the mind feels tired and just needs to settle back, relax into more simple, some simplicity. So just that, that balance of um, effort mm -hmm. and um, settling back, because it, it seems that it, there also needs to be an intentionality. Yeah. It's not just, oh, an image will arrive. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quick one. Uh, this thing about the, you love an image and the image loves you back. Mm -hmm. It's not quite an exchange, but I don't really have got my hand around that. Okay. Uh, hmm. <laughs> All right. So. I don't actually know that I can remember all that now, but let's see, let's see what happens, and if I don't, um, so where to start? Um, maybe with James's question, like, we use this word soul, and can I give a poetic image or something like, like that? I would prefer not to, actually, and there's a reason for that. Um, I, I'm a little reluctant, in a, in a way what we're doing with this, <coughs> in this paradigm, this teaching, is not prescribing images so much. Where, whereas in other traditions or religions, you get the images prescribed, the Eucharist or Christ on a cross or wh whatever it is, which is, which is great. But there's a kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, like a, uh, a meta stance here, M-E-T-A, um, that images will be individual, created, discovered, etc. So, so in some ways, um, concepts, although an image is, is going to be elastic too and will evolve, I think, f for me, I feel like I'm a, I'm a little bit just tentative about sort of prescribing images or offering them out, whereas concepts seem a little bit more kind of pointers in a direction that can be a bit more loose for, for me and then evolve. And so one of the, one of the concepts, if, if that's okay, one of the concepts about all this is that concepts need to be loose. 
they need to be elastic. And if we define them, it's like there's a, there's a real tension between defining them too tightly and rigidly um, uh, so that they can't grow, so that we can't kind of, they can't gain depth and meaning and width and, and all that. That on the one hand, on the other hand, define, not bothering to delineate precisely and with discrimination between concepts so that actually there isn't much fruitfulness and it just, so there's this kind of dance and tension between that and soul, it almost more than any other of the concepts we use falls right there. But we could say, I haven't said that very loosely, we could kind of give circular kind of descriptions. Soul is, um, one, one way is soul is just um, shorthand for a sense of soulfulness with all that that means, you know. Um, but another way is, is uh, to, to kind of point to it in a more subjective sense as it usually gets used, like you have a soul or the soul has you or whatever. Um, and then what might it mean there? Again, it needs to be very open, but kind of circularly, soul is the organ or the instrument of perceiving soulfully perceiving in ways that are soul-making. And so when the more we do this, the more that organ kind of grows in, in its powers and its range and its capacities. Um, so seeing in ways that feel soul-making, which means the eros, the beauty, the meaningfulness, all, all, all that stuff, the eros, psyche, logos, dynamic, sensing in ways, whether it's internal or external, thinking in ways, that whole capacity... Uh, body, relating to body, in all that, the, the whole instrument becomes a kind of um, organic, alive, multifaceted organ for soul-making perception in, in more ways than we can, you know, we're going to uh, discover, etc. So that, that leaves the, for me, that leaves it very wide, but gives a sense of what it, what it might be, yeah? Is that... Yeah, thank you. If I could ask an, uh, a short, slightly cheeky follow-up. If the word soul didn't exist, do you have a sensible word you might use instead? Psyche. Psyche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, I've forgotten some of the questions, but... Uh, I did mention, so what happens in this growing of the range and the, and the kind of, uh, kinds and depths and, and, uh, even modes of perceiving soulfully is, um, is, uh, w- w- they are created and discovered. We discover them. There's something happens. And so there's this word, um, who was it who asked this one? Create, discover. Pubs, yeah. So, um, there may be a word in English that, I don't know if Catherine said this when I, before I came to, to this morning, but there may be a word in English which um, uh, means something like both created and discovered at the same time. So not a bit created and a bit discovered. This bit's created, but that bit's discovered. Um, something that somehow means that completely in one. I don't know if there's a word. I don't <laughs> okay, great, yeah. Um, so magic, or I just put create slash discover. And in a way, what that does is, um, it, it, for me, it reflects a little bit, and a little bit, a little bit related to Anna Monica's question, which I'll come back to later, the actual sense we have. So a lot of the language you use is kind of just giving words to things that I think, if we just let this process happen, we'll get this sense. So a bit like the real, not real thing. Sometimes, 
um, you ask someone working with an image, does it feel real or not real? And it'd be like, well, kind of neither and both, you know. And that's just a natural, a natural evolution of the soul-making process. A natural, like, that's how we, what we kind of begin to notice and sense about some soul-making perception. But just so is the create-discover. Because there's a sense that I, I am doing this. I am creating this. Um, but there's also a sense that I'm discovering something. I'm stumbling across something. Something was given to me. Does does it make sense? So in a way, that 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 uh, element, create slash discover or magic, reflects both, or is is designed to reflect both. Oh, you'll notice this, you know, as you. And there's some this word or phrase for it is just. Oh, this is characteristic of soul making experiences. Characteristic of sensing the soul. It's got this kind of strange amalgam of the two. Yeah. Um, but it's also intended as a kind of, uh, if you like, um, guide or balance point. So that when I remember, uh, oh, that's an element, then I remember something of my participation in, in the creation and the discovery. This has to do with a node of participation. And that does something that's connected to the neither real nor not real. It does something to my whole relationship with what I'm perceiving, whether it's something in the world or another or something purely internal, etc. And that, um, it seems to narrow it, because we're saying, oh, not that, and not that, this thing in the middle, create, discover, or neither real nor not. At first it seems to narrow it, but it's like, you know, the old phrase, narrow is the gate, narrow is the path, but then it opens, it's by virtue of going on that, just for a while, it might feel a little like, well, what are they talking about, and why do I have to constrain it to that, and why can't I just feel it this way or that way? It's all good, but there's something about this narrow gate in a lot of these things that then opens up way wider than either of the other other two were just what I create or just what I discover. So it's kind of a, um, it's it's something to remember occasionally in practice and that remembering kind of uh, starts to shape my sense of what's going on and my sense of what's going on shapes uh, my relationship with what's going on and that determines what then is possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, I listened to it a couple of times more. <laughs> okay, um, it's it's some of these concepts are tricky. And like I said, but there's not really a word in English because we don't. A lot of the way we think um, think in English about reality and about self and object is dualistic. <clears throat> and when we go to non-duality, we just kind of go to a, a kind of all-one soup or something like that. And this is neither. This is neither. Okay, uh, both of those are great. It's fantastic to perceive and and conceive dualistically at times. It's really really important, and it's a lovely range of experiences and really important mystical experiences that happen when we everything dissolves in some kind of uh, mystical soup. Um, but but there's this other thing. Let's call it in the middle that that seems narrow at first, and then opens up a whole other range of experiences. And we don't really have the language for that, partly because language is based on notions of subject and object, and the verb is the thing done by the subject to, in relation to the object. D- does that make sense? So that's uh, maybe there are much better ways of explaining this, but that's all I can come up with now. There's something curious about, about this, uh, a certain range here that really is not well captured in... Certainly in English language, I don't know enough about other languages, but I presume not so well either, but I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, it takes a while, but again, a lot of these elements are things that we notice. 
So we, we, we're teaching kind of from the front here, but we could just say, like, if you just keep doing this stuff, at some point, you'll, these are things you'll notice anyway, regardless of whether you've heard them. If you're, if you're practicing with enough kind of sensitivity of, of what, you know, what's going on, what's the feeling here, that I, I think you'd have some kind of sense of things when it really feels soul-making, that, that is exactly that. Now, you might put it in your own words, but it's, it will be reflecting the same thing. Does that make sense? Um, and so that's very related uh, to participation, which was actually just part of, um, part of your question, Naomi. And what were some others left forgetting now? Yeah. With awakening. Yeah. What's Fullness that? Fullness of intention. Fullness of intention. Who asked that one? Hmm? It's the same one. Uh, fullness of intention and awakening. It was both you, Naomi, yeah? Yeah. So, um, uh, <clears throat> yeah. There's so much to say about this one. So, maybe to... S- and I've talked a lot about it. So, if you're interested, you can hear hours and hours and hours of me <laughs> wittering on about this stuff. Um, maybe, yeah. Um, but, yeah, there are many, many hours on this. Uh, so, there's a talk, a recent talk of What is Awakening. There's, there's a whole... I can't remember the titles, but a whole hours of segments of talks in Eros Unfettered, and way before, well not way before, a couple of years before that, in, um, I think it was uh, November Solitary here, there was a talk called Questioning Awakening, and it had two follow-on parts, something like Buddhism Beyond Modernism, Buddhism Beyond Modernism and In Praise of Restlessness. Um, and that, that forms a three-part set, and there's probably others, and maybe some other people can tell you, but there's lots and lots of material, so this is really key, you know. Well, I guess I you know, just try and be brief with this on on what's you know again one of those actually I think by definition the way I would like to approach it is that it's one of these endlessly expanding subjects. So that's and that and that is not typically how we think of awakening. We tend to think of that is awakening or that is it's like this I've got it or I don't or I'm halfway there or whatever it is. In in this paradigm, it's actually the notion of awakening is ever expanding. And that relates to a bit like this buffet of treasures that I described the other day. And we are oh, terrible. And, and actually, it's just glory upon glory of, of beautiful creation discovery. But having said that, just to make a historical note um, that contextualizes all this, is um, that if you're around enough, even around at Guy House, just Guy House, let alone going to Japan and looking at the history of Dharma in different countries. And you ask, um, even just teachers or, or, or retreatants, what's your idea or image, what's your idea of what awakening is? What's your image of what an awakened person looks like and where this is going? You're going to get, just from Gaia House, just from Gaia House teachers, just from Guy House Teacher Council, mm-hmm. you're going to get a huge... You're going to get a huge range. That is the... I mean, you could just say that's the historical state of Buddha Dharma. You could also say, well, there's a reason why we have range that has more to do with the nature of soul. Okay, but I'll put that one aside. Um, so you ask people, sometimes awakening means um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, coping with the existential obvious reality of 
a meaningless material world, your birth and your death in, in that, and kind of just bearing up with that. And that's what awakening means, and trying to be kind with that, and trying to have the courage to face the, the reality of that. For some people, that's what awakening means. For other people, awakening is just talking about a moment of awakening when there's this sort of fresh perception of things that doesn't seem to have a lot of ideation to it, or a lot of will, and one's just, and that's a moment of awakening, and there's no grand awakening beyond that. For other people, awakening has to do with this transcendent, unfabricated, where um, one experiences in meditation the deeper and deeper fading, fading of things, opening up to a realm that is completely beyond anything we can put into language, and that telling us something about about all this, which might be a kind of rejection of all this. None of this, this is samsara, this is worthless, this is nothing. The best thing to do is to get out of this and not be reborn again. And the one who is not reborn again is the awakened one. And stages of awakening are moving towards how near am I to not coming back to all this world of perception. Just samsara, just worthless. Um, uh, And you could go on and on and on, the different shades of it. Um, What does it mean? And And then even track back, okay, so... Awakening is to do with the third noble truth in relation to the first noble truth of dukkha. And then we ask, what is dukkha? What actually are we addressing when, what, when we say suffering? And, and, and you know, some of it's obvious um, what, what it means. But if you expand the, the range of what that can mean. So there's all that. And I find it absolutely fascinating. And fascinating how easily we can become really closed you know, around a certain point of view. Um, and what's the place of soul in that, whether we're conscious of it or not? Why is it that a person chooses to opt for this vision? It's not just because it makes it makes sense. I see how the pieces fit together. When I choose a vision of awakening, I'm actually choosing a cosmos. I'm choosing a vision of the cosmos, and I'm choosing a vision of the self in response to that cosmos. A person can choose. I choose a meaningless cosmos in which the nobility of the self is to show up and just bear with that and have that kind of dignity and bravery and openness. Or a person can choose a magical cosmos, layers and dimensions and the participation of of the soul in the creation, discovery of perception, etc., etc. So this this psychologically, I think it's an incredibly interesting question. Why? Why choose this one or that one? What's going on for this personality or that personality? Um, Without any right or wrong, but just seeing the whole thing actually from a soul perspective. So we can look at what we're doing here, this improper dharma, um, as as, uh, from the perspective of proper dharma, kind of fit it into, okay, so there's a lot of papancha going on, clearly. (laughs) And clearly there's a lot of craving. um, And there's a lot of overthinking. Um, Or one can also turn... (laughs) one, One can also turn things around and look at certain other versions of dharma from a soul making understanding. Again, why is the soul gravitating towards that? What is it about... And again, I go back to what I said the other day. When we're in love with the path, any of those versions of those people who have those different visions, love love it. And there's eros there. They may not have that language. But basically, something has become an image and a whole set of concepts that are that meaningful to their soul and attractive to their soul. So then you have a whole soul psychology kind of not deconstruction, but perspective on conventional. So there's there's all that, yeah. Okay. So then, then there's the, just this question of suffering and dukkha, 
and 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 related to the fullness of intention and I can only speak from my experience of dukkha I me and what I'm dealing with and have had to deal with in the past etc and also working with people working a lot one to especially one to one with people you know with abuse history sexual abuse and trauma and all, all kinds of stuff with this paradigm okay and what it seems to me at this point I think I said it somewhere or other at this point I kind of just have an absolute trust that all kinds of dukkha can be healed um, through through imaginal work. Not necessarily they will be in this session, or a person is quite ready for that, or even quite ready to even look at things that way. You know, bring that. But I I just have that sense. And if I'm working with someone one on one, it's it's is that is that doorway open? Can I can I sense that that may be available for this person right now? And and my my experience is that there's a healing available through through the imaginal that. Um, kind of addresses hurts and pains and soul torments and histories that that other psychological paradigms, which I'm quite well versed in some, um, don't seem to do, and, and mindfulness doesn't quite do it, and even emptiness doesn't quite do it. Um, and so that's that was really interesting to me, really interesting, and I've just seen that over and over again, to the point where I just trust it. Um, what makes that work better is this fullness of intention, kind of semi-paradoxically. That if I, healing can be part of what I want, this ending of this dukkha, but if I can include a sense of, actually I want that in, in something even bigger, which is this fullness of soul making and sense of sacredness. I want to insole my dukkha. I want to insole my history and the pain of my past and, and whatever it is. Somehow, if that in fullness of intention can open up, then then that is it's more easy for this uh, multi-spectrum, multi-level, far-reaching, far-penetrating sort of healing to happen. Yeah. So there's that. Third thing. I mean, I could talk for hours, but I'm not going. To. This is the last thing I'm going to say for this. Um, third thing is, I've forgotten what it is now. Um, oh yeah. Um, and I've shared this again in some of those recent talks, and uh, uh, I would say that, so again, what does suffering mean? So we talk about awakening third noble truth in relation to the first noble truth. What does dukkha mean? And it might be that different ages, certainly different people, but different ages, different eras, different um, cultures, and different times have different kinds of dukkha. So that there probably have been in the history of humanity many, many cultures and societies and eras where a, a crisis of a lack of meaningfulness, or what we might call a lack of soulfulness, it just wasn't a pain. It wasn't there, uh, or rather it was very, very rare. Whereas I think um, very a key kind of strata of the dukkha of our society now at this time is is the dukkha and the pain of soulfulness. And one of the things I shared, I just, I could, again, I could one of the things I shared um, on those on those talks was, so, I, you know, I've had cancer, etc., have, whatever, and um, going to chemotherapy at the hospital in Plymouth, and uh, it's a huge hospital, and it's, 
it was so hard for me. It was really on the edge of my practice. Yes, it was hard physically. Yes, it was hard. There was an enormous amount of dukkha there, etc. What was really hard for me was the soullessness of the place. Mm-hmm. It was, everything was plastic. There was this kind of cheeriness. Death was in the room and, and people were sort of, <laughs> you know, and um, the, the, way, the way one is looked at by the, by the medical system as, basically, I'm, I'm a... I'm a a bag of chemicals with some really not very promising statistics attached to it. <laughs> and all of that, um, primarily the plastic and the, and, the, and the lack of aesthetics, and, and of all the things, and all the physical dukkha and all the possibility of dying, etc., that was a thing that was just on the edge of my practice. And sometimes I really, I really, it was really hard. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite, while I was sitting there with this, plastic pipes and you're pumping poison into the body and just I just it was that was the thing that was really hard there's a a dukkha of soulfulness that's a level of dukkha that again in the dumb we don't really have that language you know we don't so it's like creating these words to open up something look there is a pain for many people at that level meaningfulness soulfulness etc so again when we talk about awakening in third noble truth, in relation to the first noble truth, what do we mean by suffering? What kinds of suffering, and what do they need? How will they be healed? Yeah. So that's that's some some of what's in there. Yeah. Um, the logos piece is that okay? Just to, the the logos piece. So um, yeah, when when we use the word logos, um, we don't mean anything necessarily obvious. So those two experiences you, you describe in, in relationship and, and moving, there wasn't any kind of heavy edifice or machinery of like philosophical, you know, uh, structure there. But just the fact that you could say it felt soul making implies that um, there's even something uh, like what we call soul making, even though you haven't like delineated it or and something of a soul and something of a value to that. So that's enough logos. You know, right there, right there. When we use the word logos or concept, we mean from something you know, very complex, sophisticated, subtle, conceptual structure, all the way down to just what I said, I think, earlier today. Any perception whatsoever of subject, object, uh, and time, that's already concept. It's percept. So it could, it could be just the, the most bare sense of momentary awareness with nothing happening. And that's what I perceive, nothing. And it's happening now, in this moment. That's already concept. So we're talking about something really, really subtle. It doesn't have to be. And yet, one of the things, this is not what you're asking, Dave, but one of the possibilities is, is, is a kind of quietening of the concept, but there's still a bare concept there, subtle. One of the other possibilities is that um, while we're working with an image and it's touching the heart and the energy body is going and we're moved and the soul is resonating, the mind can actually be kind of in, intuitively flickering and getting insights and seeing how different, I don't know if you've had this experience, how different elements fit together and how the structure works, how soul making happens. So sometimes in the process of soul making, it really involves the, the intellect just in a, in a kind of very, I don't know, almost automatic way, you know. So there's that possibility too. Yeah. Um, I don't know how okay you are with this. It's like 25 to. Okay. Derek, um, I didn't quite understand the question, but let me say something to see if, if it's accurate. If it's a, um, you spoke to it a little bit. Okay. Um, maybe, maybe it's the piece that um, I think part of, part of bringing out this vocabulary and making these discernments is, is to say that um, this kind of stuff is going on anyway. This is just what the soul does. 
either um, we have you know, so-called intrapsychic images and person in meditating and it comes out and, and people have told me, yeah, I've been meditating for 20 years, you know, Vipassana, insight meditation, and I never tell anyone these things that happen because it doesn't seem like it's welcome. Maybe it's not welcome. So the, 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 the soul does generate, create, create, discover, and it's part of what it does. There's that way. And then there's also the fact that if you love something, if you are devoted to something, it has become fantasy for you. It has become image, which means the sense of sitting there on a hot day and, and working and dedicating yourself, the sense of the Buddha, the sense of the path, the sense of men, it's all, it's all part of the love and dedication and devotion and eros to the path, whatever it is. Yeah? But I don't know if that's quite what you're asking. Or... Yeah, I mean, I get that. I mean, you've talked about that before, but it's just interesting for me to hear about it and to hear about, yeah, the to to think about that the pers- that perspective on our, on the practice and yeah. then, and then um, that sense of that's already happening and then and then coming towards this and going oh okay I have yeah. these tools yeah. for for working with something that's already wanting to happen a process that's yeah. already yeah. kind of going in that direction yeah yeah that's part of it exactly giving us the tools the concepts the the refinements of, of skill and awareness that can navigate that. But, but there's a second thing to me, which is also, and I think I must have said it yesterday morning when I talked about desire, it's like when we don't have the words and, and no one talks about certain concepts, we almost blind ourselves to them. And so, you know, I asked you guys, is that really, is that really what, what you love? Is that really what you're doing this for? Just the, the decrease of suffering? That's what you draw you to Buddha Dharma, and it's almost like just giving us the concepts and talking about it makes us re- makes us realize. I think in a lot of cases, oh, there's more going on here. Yet we haven't had the language to it for it. And when we don't have the language, it, it's like it's almost like we can't fill out the psychological understanding and see what it needs. D- does that make sense? Which to me is an important part of just psychological awareness of, of self. Like what what's going on in my life. What is it? How do I operate? How how do I get drawn to something and galvanized and, and, and all that? And that that's for me a really important piece. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andrew, was there someone else? It was one about the intention intention of Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Let's do that and then come back to that. So that's that's a really important one. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think the. Um, like I, I would say all practice, in, in, or deepening in any practice, we could be talking about metta, we could be talking about samadhi or emptiness practice or mindfulness or whatever, as, as it matures, um, the deepening involves a kind of learning to play with the gas pedal, you know, and a little bit more, a little bit less. In, in the larger sense, as in, well, I'd probably take a break the, ne- the next sitting or whatever, um, or uh, I'll, I'll sit late into the night, or whatever, in the larger sense, but also in the micro sense of how much effort, how much pressure, how much sort of um, kind of uh, direct intentionality, direction of intentionality, activity, is there in the moment. And that's not an on-off switch. It can be really, really finely tuned in any practice. And I would say that's a really important part of any practice deepening, the, the, again, the sensitivity, the skill developing. Um, and the same is true of, of uh, soul-making and imaginal practice. I think there's, there's almost uh, intrinsic to soul-making, there's in the create-discover thing, right there, you've got the create is active and the discover is, is passive. You've also got one of the nodes is grace. In other words, grace. the thing about grace is just inexplicable gift. It's just like, 
why was I given this? I didn't do anything. It just showed up. Um, and you've got the first node is the idea of the lattice, implicit in which is, hey, we can do subtle things that support the soul making. So right in that whole 28 nodes, you've got the implicit sort of dance of, of not just effort, but also attitude. I see it as grace. I can see it as grace. I can see it as some something that is an art for me that I can play with. You, you understand? So there's there's effort, but there's also attitude and, and kind of way of looking, a way of conceiving. And I think with a lot of soul-making stuff, it's really it's quite a delicate poise. So even just to have the intention to be receptive to an image. Not, it's very different when you said it's like, oh, an image will show up sometime. Um, maybe, probably not with that. If, if that's the, you know, it's kind of, whatever. Um, uh, there's a kind of real, you know, there's already a kind of humility in the poise of like, let's see what comes, and, and opening. And I can feel there's just already a kind of delicacy. There's already a sensitivity. There's an openness. There's the possibility. There's already humility of a kind. I may not even know to what, to soul, to psyche, to the divinity, whatever, Buddha nature. Um, and there's the beginnings of all these things. So that poise is a kind of, this kind of, of a, a, a kind of intention or a kind of place on the intentional spectrum. And so that's very much part of it. It's very, de- it's very much more delicate than like, right, I'm going to, you know, w- whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's, this is very, very delicate. I mean, sometimes the energies that come and the eros that comes is really strong, but a lot of it is really, really subtle and delicate. And the, and the kind of poise of intentionality or receptivity that we could, um, so it's the intention to be receptive a lot of the time, as as much as anything. Does that make sense? And and as always, it's not a fixed place. It's a, it's a it's an arena. This whole thing: intentionality, grace, receptivity, humility, activity, art. They're they're just an arena for us to to play and experiment in and see what happens. And it's never like ah nailed it. Now that's it. Just as it is not with any practice. Uh, uh, kind of bandage the gas pedal in that position and just leave it there. It's always kind of, uh, you know, it's very subtly modulated in, in the art of response, you know. Yeah, does that okay? Good. Last thing, if it's okay, the energy body. Yeah, thank you. Um, so is there, is there a kind of danger in um, alerting attention to... Or, to the possibility of kind of, for instance, breathing in certain ways where the energy body can have more energy. Yeah. Um, potentially, yeah. My experience sort of meeting loads of people over the years is that most people don't have enough energy. Or rather, the energy is moving in their system in a way that is just jangled and kind of not really harmonizing in a way that actually creates a lot, a lot of available energy. So that kind of, you know, making a choice... Uh, Kind of, for most people, um, it, either the energy doesn't harmonize, or again, there's a kind of restriction on just how much energy they will allow, how much energy we're, we're used to flowing in the body. So I think if I'm not taking too much care to be completely comprehensive, I'll lean towards that side of like, this is probably most common. You know, I go <coughs> teach places or, or here, and I can just feel, and you know, it's, there's every good reason for it, lots of reasons, but, um, Oftentimes people tend to, they might feel quite chaotic and agitated inside, but actually it's a state of, of not much energy. So I kind of, if I've not got much time, I'll, I'll lean on that side. But yeah, I guess there's a danger, but I, in that context, I wouldn't kind of harp too much on the possibility of too much energy. Because, and, and you know that I 
believe, um, or I feel very much that in a lot of cases when there is too much energy and flowing in different ways, that it's a lot easier to fix and liberate than a lot of people say, and you've experienced that. So I don't tend to get too anxious about that stuff. Um, persons has that experience with me, I, I know how to kind of you know, make it not so much a problem. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. There is a danger, and you know, Catherine and I had this conversation. It's like actually, it wasn't quite what she's saying, so I don't want to put words in her mouth. But yeah, putting these teachings out about following imagination and eros, and wow, maybe some people would just take it and run with it, you know, make crazy, you know. Um, yeah, it's there. I think just the balance of things for me it just felt a calling that it was necessary to do it. So. Um, yeah. Uh, if they're not, then they can get in touch. I mean, if they're not with me, then I don't, yeah, I don't know. But also, there's two sides to it. It's also possibly a smoother path, isn't it? More of a smoother path than from some, both in terms of energy and yeah. difficulty. Yeah. I think the way we tend to work with energy allows it to, to smooth more and not be so problematic. So there's ways of working with energy body where you're just like lighting fireworks to, to some kind of powder keg, and it's not. It's often not that helpful. So the the way we tend to do it is is much more organic, gentle, and things can open in a much more harmonized way. But yeah, does that okay for me? Yeah, I think that was it. Okay, that was my question about the love. Oh yeah. Um. I, I, let me just say one thing because I'm aware of time. We need to eat. Yeah, the tea wash. I think it's a matter of just having that idea that it's possible for you to notice, but expanding the idea of, of what that could possibly look like or feel like or mean. So when we think love, we tend to think, oh, it's going to look this way. But sometimes it can be fierce or kind of very stern or whatever. Yeah. So just expand the range and then just look. Oh, yeah, there's this kind, but I hadn't really thought of that as a kind of face of love before. Yeah. Okay, very good. Let's have a bit of quiet. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.